welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is John Bergmeier, Legal Director of Public Knowledge. We will discuss his white paper, Tending the Garden, How to Ensure that App Stores Put Users First. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've been, you know, really enjoying following your uh, your your ideas and observations on on Twitter, and I, I really enjoyed reading this white paper, which provided a kind of background and context for app stores, how they work, and sort of what the policy issues surrounding them are in ways that hadn't occurred to me previously. But I wonder if you if you could start with kind of a big picture view, like. It, what do you what do we mean by an app store? What are they? What do they do and why do they exist? Right, yeah. So in the paper, I'm mostly talking about dominant app stores, in particular the Google Play Store and mostly uh, Apple's app store. And really you can't understand those app stores without the fact that understanding that they're they're closely tied to the software platform. You know, on Windows you have the Steam store, for example, where people buy a lot of games. That's obviously an app store, but it's an independent app store. It's not really tied to the platform. So the app stores that I'm talking about here, first of all, are uh, app stores that are put out by the operating system vendor, and they are sort of specially privileged in one way or the other. And in fact, on uh, Apple's iOS devices, the app store is literally the only way to get software on the phone. Well, I shouldn't have said literally because there are a few ways around it. If you're an enterprise uh, developer, you can get a special certificate. Of course, you could run web apps and things like that. For, for, but for general consumer use, there's no option to do something which, which is called sideloading, uh, which is just a method of installing software on a device that doesn't involve doesn't involve the app store. You know, sideloading is one of those words like acoustic guitar, uh, a retronym, which is a word that we had a coin to refer to something, which used to be the only way to do something used to be sideloading, but now, now it gets a special little term. Mm. Well, so, I mean, how big then is the market kind of controlled by app stores and what market have they really replaced? In other words, what's new? about the sort of app store ecosystem that we're living in today? I think that the, the, the biggest difference between now and say, you know, before the mobile revolution is just that mobile phones are just so much bigger than desktop PCs ever were. I mean, Apple's iOS alone, which is a minority operating system, you know, compared with Android, but it itself is larger and more economically important in a lot of ways than Microsoft Windows. And a lot of people's understanding of the tech industry was really uh, formed during the time of Microsoft's dominance and concerns about Microsoft's antitrust. And the fact that the mobile, uh, the mobile ecosystem just dwarfs the desktop ecosystem, I think sometimes still surprises a lot of people because you know a lot of people still think of phones as new, as more toys, but they really drive a lot of economic activity. My paper does have some citations as to uh, how big the app economy is. One, one source says 950 billion, another source says 6.3 trillion, Another source is 568 billion. Uh, you know, it just depends on how you count things. I think they're all just guesstimates. I think it's just safe to say that it's uh, huge and economically important. Mm -hmm. Well, so you've mentioned other people kind of talking about the sort of policy implications of app stores and specifically thinking about them in 
relation to antitrust issues like those that emerged around around Windows. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the conversation that's already happening and and maybe also what you think it's missing. Right. So the conversation about antitrust is very interesting because I think for specific instances, there probably are antitrust uh, arguments to be, to make, to be made. Uh, just last week, the European Commission announced that it was beginning an investigation into Apple's app store practices around in-app purchases. European competition law is obviously different than American, but I think you could bring a similar claim. Uh, I think the issue is that some of the issues that arise with app stores from gatekeeper control really aren't competition issues. And also antitrust, while very valuable, can be a pretty narrow lens to view some problems. So for example, let's say there was a, a private antitrust claim uh, by Spotify against Apple and say they won. Well, would the relief that they get be broadly ap applicable in structural ways to other developers or developers who are not exactly situated the same as Spotify? So this paper, instead of saying, you know, here is the here's the antitrust case against this or that app store, and here's what the legal arguments would look like, instead sort of like skips forward and says, well, assume basically that there is a digital platform regulator, which is something that my organization, Public Knowledge, thinks there should be, and this digital platform regulator was looking at app stores, what would they recommend? Right? What would the actual rules be? What would the content of the, of the NPRM and the order be with regard to app stores? And if you don't like looking at it that way, th just think of it as, okay, well, these are the policy changes that the app stores should just adopt uh, in order to be more friendly to consumers and independent developers uh, in particular. And some of the issues have to do with government censorship in foreign countries and uh, you know, moral standards. And uh, I think those issues in particular are kind of hard to view from an antitrust lens. So I don't want to say that antitrust isn't the right tool here because I think antitrust is extremely valuable uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, however, you know, if you want broad, comprehensive structural reforms, uh, changing policies in ways that are designed to promote competition rather than just to prevent certain uh, acts and to promote values of free expression. I do think you want to take a, a slightly broader view than antitrust alone. Mm -hmm. Well, so the paper focuses primarily on the Apple and Google app stores. I wonder if you could talk a little bit kind of more specifically about how those two app stores are operated, sort of how they differ in ways that are relevant to the kind of policy issues that they're concerned about, and sort of how they got that way. In other words, what are the incentives driving the companies that operate those stores to operate them in the way that they do? Sure, there's, there's at least uh, two uh, technical and policy differences, and one is sort of almost like an operational difference. I think just as an operational difference, uh, Apple tends to be a lot more exacting in the standards of review it puts on apps and it puts them through a lot more, uh, just a, a lot more steps and tests. Uh, but I think the, the, the primary differences are with in-app purchases. This is a, this is a huge controversial issue. Uh, and, and it's really the source of the European Commission complaint and the complaints that a lot of developers have uh, against Apple. And just to put that in context, so at first, you had free apps and you had paid apps. And then later, they, uh, the concept of an in-app purchase was introduced where the app would be free to download, but then if you really were enjoying it or you wanted to get some pro-level functionality or something extra, you would use an in-app purchase system. And it, had, and it paid the same commission as if you had just done a paid 
download from the store itself. Because the idea was they didn't want to incentivize people who had a paid app switching it to a free app, and then you had to like enter a credit card number to, uh, you know, to use it. You know, so far so good. But um, one difference between Apple and Google is Apple says, well, you know, that applies to any digital content that you buy in an app. So if, when you download the Kindle app on iOS, you can't buy a Kindle book on iOS because if Amazon were to offer that functionality, they would have to give Apple 30% of each transaction. And eBooks, which are already a pretty low margin business, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. While on Android, you can. So neither app store applies that in-app purchase rule to real life goods and services. So you don't need to use the in-app purchase system to order an Uber, to get a meal from Grubhub, to buy you know, physical stuff that shipped to your door from Amazon. So then the question is, what digital goods and services does it apply to? Google and Apple both apply it to things like uh, game items, you know, stuff that seems like kind of tied to the app itself, app functionality, they both apply it to. But Google does not apply it to media subscriptions and it doesn't apply it to uh, paid media purchases. And this is the core of Spotify's particular complaint against Apple. Uh, Spotify cannot offer in-app purchase without giving 30% to Apple. It can't provide its own payment system. Apple prevents Spotify from even telling users like, hey, go to the website and subscribe there. Here's a link. Uh, you know, you need to subscribe. They're just, they just have to not mention it at all whatsoever. If you do subscribe, it works just fine. And this is in particular a problem for Spotify because uh, in the United States, at least, Apple Music has recently surpassed Spotify, I think, in a number of paid users. So Spotify is competing head to head with a platform, which obviously is not paying 30% to itself in some way. It has a, it has a significant financial advantage. Um, so, and that is one difference between Apple and Google is that Google is a little more lax in what it applies to in-app purchase rules to. And another issue is just sideloading. So that's the issue I mentioned before of just installing software from, uh, you know, just from the web. So on Android, you can just download an app and install it. You might have to mess around with your security settings on your phone for a little bit, but it is possible. Um, that said, you know, I, I do think that sideloading is super important and something that Apple should allow. Uh, it should have certain safeguards. So for example, in the paper, I recommend that side-loaded apps still need to be uh, use something called code signing to sort of verify that they're coming from a known developer. And then if it turns out to be malware, that certificate can be revoked and the app is disabled remotely. I think side-loaded apps should maybe be in a more strict sandbox. Uh, and, and there should maybe be multiple different code signing authorities. So you're not just replicating the same gatekeeper control uh, in another form. Uh, Google doesn't require that apps that are installed from outside the app store be signed. So that's a potential security problem. But also um, Epic Games has its game Fortnite. Uh, it's, pretty, it's very popular and it makes a lot of money. On iOS, there's no option to sideload. So from the get-go, it was just in the app store and they were just paying 30% of every transaction to Apple. But on Google, they were just like, huh, we don't want to pay that 30%. That's a lot of money. So we're gonna tell Android users, you know, here's how you install the app. Uh, just download it from this website, here's the settings, you install it, and then bam, you know, we're not paying over 30% to Google. But guess what, they gave up because it is such a technical challenge. There's this extra friction for sideloading that even though you do have that sort of escape valve in the context of Google, uh, it really was not enough 
to justify simply not being in the Google Play Store for Android. Does that mean I think that sideloading like doesn't solve any problems? No, because in some countries, uh, app stores are required to take down certain apps or certain categories of app. And I don't think that, you know, it makes sense to tell Apple like, you know, hey, you need to just keep these apps up in the Chinese app store in defiance of the Chinese government and risk your executives being sent to jail. Or you just need to like exit the country immediately. Those are very uh, interesting uh, proposals that people have said that tech companies should do, but I just don't think they're that realistic. While as if they just said, well, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to allow VPN apps in the uh, iOS app store in China. We're going to take down podcasting apps as they recently have. And Hong Kong will take down the HK map app, which allowed people to track protests. It's like, well, I don't agree with any of those choices. Uh, but then if at least people could sideload the apps, they could still get them on their devices by, you know, searching them out if they were interested. So I think, you know, sideloading serves a, a very valuable purpose in terms of free expression and like user empowerment. But, you know, as, as the Fortnite sh issue showed, it doesn't entirely eliminate the competitive bottlenecks that app stores uh, create for uh, independent developers. So, so you've talked some about some of the limitations imposed by app stores, either de facto or maybe kind of on purpose as part of a business model. Why are they, why are they so ubiquitous? Why are they so popular? Why do consumers use them? Are there any benefits associated with the kind of app store model as it currently exists? Yeah, so I come from a tradition of people who are interested in technology, where my default is that I'm just skeptical of gatekeepers. Uh, I think that, you know, I'm a big net neutrality advocate. I remember people being mad about, uh, you know, Microsoft's trusted computing initiative in the early 2000s. Uh, and, you know, if you told the me of 20 years ago that I would now generally be in favor of certain kinds of restrictions on developers and users, that would have seemed crazy to me. But I think we've seen that having a, a completely open computing environment where you just visit a web page and it has the ability to install software on your device and that software can just like access your contacts and email all your friends and run a Bitcoin miner in the background and just do any number of other things. I think we've seen that you do need to have some sort of security safeguards in terms of what apps can do. Those are uh, technical uh, in terms of what the platforms allow. So a, a common thing now is sandboxing where apps simply cannot access data outside their own little universe of data unless the user affirmatively grants them access on a case-by-case on a -case basis. Um, and then app stores, I think, are part of that. App stores provide a measure of sort of trust, like, you know, here's where I go. The apps here are probably not going to be malware. You know, that's been a problem on, on app stores before, but generally speaking, the platforms really try to clamp down on it. Um, you know, the app isn't going to be a total scam. The app is going to sort of work. It's going to be compatible with my device. Uh, and also, I have an easy place to see all the different apps that I purchased before if I want to re-download them. So I think in terms of security, in terms of user trust and enabling transactions that otherwise would not have happened, I think app stores uh, are pretty valuable. Like, like I, I mentioned Steam before, but Steam is optional. You know, almost every game developer, you can just buy the game from them directly. Uh, it, there are plenty of ways to get games on Windows PCs, yet Steam is just like extremely popular among users because users just find it great to have like a single place to go to, to, to buy apps. They've entered their credit card information just once and everything just charges to that account. Uh, 
you know, so, so I think that the security and trust benefits of app stores are sort of make it so that app stores aren't something we should just say, we should just get rid of them and just return to the good old days. Uh, I think they do provide a lot of benefits, but that gatekeeper control that I, that I mentioned is my sort of instinct to be skeptical of. In some instances, I do think it is being abused for essentially rent seeking behavior by the, uh, by the platform owners. And I would like for them to, uh, not to do that, and not, thus this paper. Mm-hmm. Well, so the, the, the paper is really focused on thinking about how to make the app store economy or app store model more user-friendly and to maximize benefits to users. You, you just talked about some of the reasons that users find app stores appealing. I, I mean, kind of in, in a sense, like reducing information costs and friction and so right. on for for users who might not otherwise be able to figure out how to use the technology in question to best effect. What are the costs imposed by app stores to your thinking and why do those costs exist? Yeah, I think that the biggest cost is number one, it's very hard to compete with the platform itself. So if you have an app that competes with a built-in app on a phone, uh, then it's very difficult for you when the platform owner can, or maintainer, I call it in my, in my paper, just because I think, you know, I, the value of a platform doesn't just come from the, the company itself that creates the software, but also comes from the community of develop, developers and users. So I think that is one constraint. It's just, you know, platform privilege, some people call it. Um, Another one is that app stores, just the way that the stores are structured, just put constraints on what developers can do. So I think it is good that app stores generally um, uh, are one source for software, but that does create a downward pressure on pricing because there's a lot of competition. I'm not really, I don't think too much competition is a problem, but you know, that is an issue uh, for some developers. They think there's a race to the bottom in pricing. But one, one issue is none of the app stores offer what is upgrade pricing. Uh, and that is a traditional software business model where you charge X amount upfront and then a lower fee for upgrades. Um, and that's because developers to create software, they have to put in a lot of time and energy to create the app to begin with, but then also to maintain it. And if you have already saturated your market and every, almost everyone who would possibly buy your app has already bought it, and now you have no way whatsoever of getting any further revenue from those customers, uh, that's a problem. And this is why you see a lot of apps on the store, on app stores that just get developed and released and eventually abandoned because it's no longer financially viable. So the option, they can just like put a version two as a brand new app uh, in the store, but that irritates users because they're just like, well, I already bought version one and I'm getting like basically no loyalty discount for buying version two. Um, so the result is the app stores have really pushed a lot of developers either to advertising based business models uh, which if you are concerned with privacy, because we all know the uh, data collection practices that go along with uh, digital ads, uh, that's not good. It's not good for the experience because phone screens are pretty small. Uh, and, and if an app is displaying on your screen, uh, it, it's taking up information that could otherwise be useful and the ads might actually uh, be harmful to your device's battery life. Uh, or there's this push towards just everything is a subscription and you just like sort of subscribe to the app either because it has some sort of associated cloud service or it's more of like a patronage model, which can make some sense. I think, you know, Microsoft and Adobe have a pretty successful 
uh, software business models, Office 365 and, and Adobe Creative Suite. But I don't, I don't know that I really want to pay a, subscri a monthly subscription for my calendar or my podcast app or something like that. But at the same time, I might be more than willing to purchase it. And then every so often, you know, and that's another advantage of the upgrade business model is that you don't have to purchase an upgrade. You can skip three or four versions while with a subscription, it's just charged every month, no matter what. So I think that sort of those, those business model constraints uh, uh, are, are not great for developers or users. And then there's just other issues such as uh, censorship and curation. Um, you know, basically adult themed or controversial apps uh, are not particularly welcome in app stores, even when the same companies allow movies or books that touch on those subjects uh, on their stores. And it's weird because I don't want to say, okay, well, Apple, you need to allow like porn apps on your store and just sort of put in user, user filters or something. Instead, I think, uh, you know, if you want to have an app that touches on adult topics or, or, or something that's politically controversial, you know, that's what sideloading again is for. It's for the users who are interested in it can still access an app that does those things outside the confines of the store. So a lot of it just comes down to the fact that you have this gatekeeper power in between, you know, standing in between users and developers. And what are they using it for? They might be making moral choices that either users or developers disagree with. They might be making business model choices. And they might just be trying to exploit the relationship to basically collect a toll uh, in ways that are sort of beyond what retailers uh, traditionally uh, have charged. In fact, that's just, that's just another sort of very important point too, is people really focus on this 30% figure, uh, which is much higher than like credit card transaction fees. But traditional retailers, that's, that's a, a pretty standard margin to charge. Uh, that's the margin that, that again, that Steam and uh, Good Old Games, another independent or GOG, another independent game store on the PC charges. So it's not really the fact that it's the 30% that is too high. It is like all of the other business model constraints and the app design constraints that they put on developers uh, that, that I think interfere with developers a little bit more. Mm, well, so I have to ask because of my own interest. You also point to some issues generated by, by kind of implications related to copyright law and policy yeah. and the concept of ownership in the context of, of app stores and how they function. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how the different kind of policy sort of frameworks and decisions in light of those frameworks are potentially user unfriendly. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know this is something that's very important to me too. And uh, again, it's not necessarily, particularly when it comes to like archiving, it's not necessarily the kind of thing that's going to be addressed by copyright law. But I think it's super important. Uh, I think the first issue just has to do with user rights and sort of digital first sale issues, where you know in the traditional world you buy a video game. Uh, you, you're done with it. You can just resell it to GameStop. It's a physical item. You have ownership of it and you're entitled to sell it. Um, and notably also, uh, if you own a copy of software, you don't need a license to use it. Uh, if you're the lawful owner of a copy, making any additional copies that are necessary uh, to execute that software is specifically authorized under, under copyright law. So you don't need a license for it. While as uh, with the App Store model where things are just downloaded, look, I'm going to argue all day long that because of the, the wording of the Copyright Act, 
if you own your phone, that means you own a copy of all the software that's on your phone because copy is defined as a material object. I'm looking at the material object. I have it in my hand. It's mine. So therefore, I own a copy of the software. But nevertheless, they will say that you're, you've licensed it. Uh, but as a practical matter, that means if I have amassed a copy uh, a large collection of books, say, I can leave them in my will to my children. I can sell them. I can give them to someone else. With ebooks, you can't. Uh, they will say that you don't own them. You don't own a copy, so the first sale doctrine doesn't apply. Uh, you, you can transfer your account from one person to another, like you're not supposed to, but nothing really stops you from just giving someone, say, your, your Amazon username and password or your Apple username and password, and then presto, they have, they have your account. But there's no way then of taking any digital content, apps, books, movies that you've purchased and sort of like adding them to an existing account so they're useful in some way. So in, in the paper, I don't quite say, I decided not to tackle digital first sale <laughs> and say, oh, we need to like, you know, rewrite copyright law and just sort of allow some sort of digital first sale. Uh, you know, that's obviously very controversial, but at least I think that people should be lawfully allowed to transfer their accounts from one person to another. And then once you have two accounts to like merge the purchases into one so they're, so they're useful. Uh, there's a professor, I think I have his name right, Jason Mazzoni. He wrote a book called uh, Copy Fraud some years ago, and he had a similar proposal where instead of just saying like, oh, we need to have digital first sale, we need to define, you know, what counts as a software copy and allow, he just says, whatever rights you have as a user, you should just be able to transfer those rights. So if you have like a one month Netflix subscription, you should be allowed to just like transfer that. Uh, and I think that the option to merge accounts uh, is basically makes that operational in a way that it's useful to people. And the other issue is just um, archiving and emulation. Uh, you know, organizations like the Internet Archive and others, they take old software, old computers, they emulate them in, in software. They allow people to access this sort of like historical record uh, of what applications and games were in, in the 80s. Uh, and there's, it's very difficult to think of how you could do that with, uh, with modern mobile platforms because basically you can only run them on devices that are, that are running certain operating system versions. And once the operating system itself has advanced beyond the point where it supports that app, you can't access it anymore. Like even if you buy a new iPhone today, you can't install an old version of iOS on it. You know, those are no longer signed, as they, as they say. So you can't then go back and install, like, outdated software. So I think at least with software that is not commercially viable anymore, uh, the developers really have an obligation. I, you know, it's basically an, an obligation to our culture to allow for older operating system versions to be emulated in software and to allow people to bypass DRM uh, as necessary to, to continue running uh, old versions of apps. Mm -hmm. Well, so you've identified a bunch of user-unfriendly features that are associated in different kind of forms and versions uh, with, with app stores. Are the platform managers, as you put it, aware of those user-unfriendly features? And if so, why don't they fix them? Is because they don't know how? Because they don't want to? Because they have an incentive not to? Like, why haven't they already solved these problems? Yeah, I think I think it's mostly that they have an incentive not to. Um, In-app purchases uh, and similar sort of transactions that are associated with an app store are a big driver of services revenue for companies. 
Uh, and you know, companies are always looking to uh, find new areas of revenue growth. Uh, when you look at Apple, where the iPhone market is, you know, this is a $1.5 trillion company. They're not hurting for cash, but nevertheless, investors still expect them to show growth. It's hard to show growth when you know, you've already saturated the market with your products. So how do you show growth? Well, you get more money from existing customers and you do that through services. In some ways, uh, that's fine. You know, you want to have Apple TV Plus or Apple Arcade. You know, you're providing new services for people to pay for. That's wonderful. But another way is to just basically skim off the top of, of third-party developers. And I think that that is, that is the basic financial reason why, uh, you know, some of these policies are in place. Sometimes I think it's just inadvertent. Like companies... You know, if you work at one of these companies, you have a better idea of the roadmap of where the platform is going. So you know, you know, how to design your products to take advantage of, you know, future developments and outsiders don't. That's uh, just like work. You know, I think in some, in some respects, the, uh, you know, the platforms just need to do a little bit more work to provide help to uh, independent developers to like give them an idea of what's to come and to give them equal access to new APIs as they're rolled out instead of saying, well, we're going to keep this to ourselves for a year or two, and then maybe we'll introduce it to third-party developers. Uh, I think there's, you know, for, for any individual case, you could probably find a different uh, explanation, but I think at least for the, um, at least for, for the issues that developers complain about the most, it's basically the incentives aren't there for the platforms to do mm -hmm. it voluntarily. Well, in the paper, you present several case studies as well of some of the issues that you're talking about. I wonder if you could briefly talk about one that you think might be particularly illuminating as to the problems you're discussing and sort of give people a more granular sense of sort of what the problems look like in practice and how they might be mitigated for consumer benefit. Yeah, I'll give you an easy example and then a complicated example. So I think the easy example is, you know, Apple has its own line of headphones, the, uh, the AirPods and uh, Beats headphones, and those just have access to features of uh, Apple devices that third parties just don't have access to at all. So if you pair a pair of Beats headphones to your iPhone, it'll sync between all your other Apple devices pretty seamlessly. You don't need to repair it to each device. You don't need to switch anything. Uh, it's very straightforward. It's also very straightforward to configure. Uh, and third-party headphone developers don't have access to anything like that. And that's just, you know, Apple would say, well, you know, we integrate our products. It's like, yeah, all that's true. Like you've done a lot of great work to make your stuff work better. And that's admirable. But at some point, you know, you are just giving yourself an unfair advantage in the marketplace that other people don't have access to. Uh, I think a complicated example has to do with location data in iOS 13. And it's more complicated because it, it, there's not really a clear, straightforward, like this is definitely what you should do versus what you should not do. Um, I think late last year, like in December, uh, there was a, a New York Times story just showing just how ubiquitous uh, user location data uh, tracking and gathering is, and they were able to basically, you know, track particular people from their home to their work, and it's all these third-party apps for the most part that are that are doing that. Um, in iOS 13, Apple made it a lot harder for apps to just track users in the background. Uh, basically, you could give them access while you were using the app or on a one-time basis, 
But for the most part, if you wanted to allow an app to track your location at all times, you basically had to launch the system settings app, dig around for it, find the app and enable it there. In other words, the app was not able to just put up a prompt to users. So the idea was clearly to make it so it is still possible to have an app that tracks you all the time 24 seven, which maybe you want for some categories of app, but to like put up a ton of friction in front of that so that unscrupulous apps don't just basically trick users into uh, tapping okay. Um, you know, it's more complicated than that. Obviously there's, you know, details of how the prompts come up and how things are worded, but that seems to be, you know, when I first heard about that, I was like, great. Cause I have the user perspective, like wonderful. It is good that, uh, you know, people aren't going to be tracked all the time and people who still want it. But developers pointed out, it's like, well, Apple doesn't play by its own rules. Uh, its own apps uh, have always on background tracking uh, no matter what. I mean, they, they, they parse it out a little differently. So for example, even if you turn off uh, location tracking, uh, location access entirely for Apple Maps on an iPhone, the actual feature that tracks where you are uh, is not part of that app. There's just like a system service called like Improve Maps or something along those lines. Uh, and so that way, even if you're a Google Maps user, Apple is still collecting, you know, anonymized, aggregate, privacy preserving, whatever, uh, location data that it uses for things like traffic information on roads for Apple Maps and, you know, similar kinds of features. So what a lot of developers have pointed out was it's like, okay, you know, you're making this stand about protecting user privacy and, you know, some developers disagree with it. They think, look, my app is so important that, you know, it should be whitelisted and just sort of given this special always tracking privilege and other people say, no, it's good. But at least you should not exempt yourself from rules like that, especially when they're designed to protect privacy. So I think that's like a, a very interesting uh, dilemma. And it's like, well, what would a solution look like? Well, maybe whatever data that Apple uh, is collecting about, you know, uh, you know, aggregate user locations that is useful for traffic, maybe that data should be available to third parties. Uh, so not just Apple, right? So that way you're still doing the thing that you think you need to do to make Apple Maps usable, even though lots of people use Google Maps instead, but at least that data is available to third parties. So you're not giving yourself, uh, you know, some major advantage. And if, you know, Apple does end up launching some kind of new kind of app that inherently requires that kind of location tracking, you know, roll it out in a way that doesn't just protect user privacy, but also makes the same privacy protecting features available to third party uh, developers. Mm. Well, so John, it, 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 in relation to that, in, in closing, you know, in your paper, you talk extensively about sort of what makes app stores good for consumers and what kind of problems uh, or, you know, kind of costs there are associated with them for consumers as well and suggest some changes that would kind of improve or benefit consumers in relation to app stores. But you're really agnostic about how, about how we might get there, like explicitly agnostic about kind of what policy tools or what approaches we might expect to sort of facilitate the adoption of these improvements. I, I mean, I, I wonder if you could kind of reflect a little bit on sort of how you think these changes might actually happen. Like what will we need to see in order for these changes to be implemented? Are the companies likely to do it on their own? Do they have reasons to do it on their own? Or are they going to need 
some sort of additional incentive to adopt uh, some or all the recommendations that you make? Yeah, so I think that in some cases, antitrust and the threat of antitrust could be enough to get the platforms to quote unquote voluntarily make changes, right? So while I'm skeptical that like the remedy that you might actually win, particularly in a private antitrust lawsuit would be enough to enact the sort of broad structural changes that you need. Uh, it could just be that, you know, you see the writing on the wall if you're a major uh, tech company and you just introduce a bunch of changes that are designed to like fend off a whole category of complaints at the get-go. Or you realize that, you know, certain things like even though they might cost you a little bit in terms of revenue would more than make up for it in terms of, you know, benefiting your public image uh, or things like that. Uh, I do think that there is room for government intervention just under current law for some specific examples. So, you know, maybe there's, you know, unfair competition claims you could bring, um, you know, maybe there's something you can do with antitrust in the United States. Uh, and I think that you know, the European Union has shown that it has a pretty robust uh, antitrust enforcement for tech companies. Uh, but I think, you know, a comprehensive solution that tackles a huge range of issues when you're not just looking to prevent harms, but also to promote market structures that benefit competition, that's the kind of thing we know, and also to promote just uh, uh, some sort of public interest or to promote free expression. Those are the kinds of things that we normally look to for, look to independent uh, agencies for in the United States. So, you know, if you look at both the Department of, Co of Transportation, the Federal Communications Commission, you look at their charter, they have competition in their mandate. And a lot of people think, well, isn't that redundant with antitrust? It's like, no, their job isn't to just find anti-competitive acts and put a stop to them. Their job is to promote competition beyond what it otherwise would have been in a free market. So if you look at antitrust as preventing harms, uh, the role of, of regulation should be to promote goods. And I think that fundamentally, at some point, we should really consider uh, having um, a regulatory body that is empowered to enact the kinds of changes that are necessary, not just for app stores, uh, but for digital platforms of all, of all kinds and, and e-commerce of all kinds, because uh, they're just of such central importance to the economy right now. And, they just and their, uh, their decisions have such broad effects uh, that I think ultimately you do need that kind of uh, comprehensive oversight. Great. Well, thanks, John. That's uh, it's been a really interesting kind of deep dive into how app stores work, and uh, I learned a lot reading your paper and talking to you about it. I hope listeners will will check out the paper as well because there's obviously a lot more detail there, and I look forward to future discussion of what a regulatory solution to some of these issues might look like. Great, thanks. You'll find the paper on publicknowledge.org.
Great as a toy concealing, love the road. 